Thank you, Kent. Thanks. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed for Children's Church. And thanks to the teachers. I'm sure the parents are all glad for that investment in their lives. Thanks for teaching them, taking care of them. As uh, Kent mentioned, my name is Tad Skinner, and Pastor Chuck is away. He's at a, a preaching conference in Nicaragua, so pray for him uh, as you think of it this week, as he travels and as he shares and ministers. I do uh, not want to thank him, though, for this passage, um, because it is, it is the one passage in the book of Habakkuk that has the word in it that makes my inner hick come out. Uh, the word that I cannot pronounce, and that is nakedness. So try not to say it very often, but uh, let me begin by sharing something that will hopefully illustrate this text of Habakkuk. Uh, many of you are familiar with the, the name Bernie Madoff. He was the architect of the largest financially fraudulent investment scheme in history, $65 billion. And what he did was he would promise he would take not just corporations, but ordinary people like you and me, take their money and promise a great return on their investment. And this started, the scheme started in the 70s and was discovered in 2008 when uh, Madoff himself was in his 70s. So he had lived an entire um, lifetime off of the backs of other people, living extravagantly. And I just looked up one person, just as one, one example um, of, of the type of people. So this is, again, not just corporations, but common, area, common ordinary people, uh, like this person, Michael, that I'm going to tell you about. He was intending on retiring at the age of 65 and hoping to live comfortably after that. But instead, because of this, because of what uh, the, the money that was stolen, the money that was promised to him that they didn't get the return on, he's now hoping to retire at the age of 75 and hoping to have just a fraction of what was promised to him returned to him. So can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine how that would feel? All of your, your dreams, all of your money taken, being lied to, can you imagine how you would feel about this, this gentleman, Bernie Madoff? Well, hopefully, that will help us to see some of the types of questions that we're going to see in this passage today in Habakkuk. Is there justice when bad people or bad situations harm us? Will bad people prosper forever? So to recap where we've been so far, Habakkuk is a prophet of God, and the people of Israel, of the, the southern kingdom of Judah, are, are far from God. They are wayward. They are... Um, ignoring God. God is really just an afterthought in their lives. So Habakkuk asked God in chapter 1, aren't you just? Why haven't you brought justice to the people of Judah? Why aren't you disciplining them? And God responds that yes, he sees, and yes, he will bring judgment, but he's going to do it through the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, this, this nation that is going to come and devour the people of God. So the prophet Habakkuk is appalled. He's literally horrified that God would do this, that God would allow a, a more wicked nation to come up against his own chosen people. So he asks the second question, how can you do that? How can you allow that? And how long will you allow this? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow these evil people to devour us? 
Well, today we're in Habakkuk chapter 2, and uh, fair warning, as you can tell by the, the title, this uh, could be perceived as a downer of a passage. Uh, lots of talk about judgment today, but hopefully we can see that for the believer in Christ, this is really not a downer. Hopefully we can see that, that there's a lot of good truth here. Uh, to be sure, Old Testament prophets are confusing and they're harsh. They can appear that way. But one of the main purposes of Old Testament prophets is to show us, to reveal to us what Jesus came and saved us from, to point towards we need a Savior. So hang in there with me. There's a couple places in this uh, passage as we talk. We'll have to put your thinking cap on. But uh, I believe in you. So hopefully you believe in yourself as well. We can get through this. So just a quick reminder, and let's not forget this, that Habakkuk is a historical book. Habakkuk was a prophet. This was set in around the 7th century BC, around 600, 650 years before Jesus, before God stepped into history as the God-man Jesus. So in this passage, we'll hear God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint. And we'll hear a response that is full of irony after irony. So the message here is that because we reap what we sow, then we can know that God is just. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, please uh, use and take home the one that's in, in the seat in front of you. It's on page 540. If you, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, I don't know what page it is on your Bible, but it's after Jonah and Micah and Nahum and before Zephaniah and Haggai, right near the end of the Old Testament. So I've asked Ruth Shumate to come up here. Uh, does anybody find it funny that I can say Haggai, but I can't say naked? So, Ruth, I find that funny. So, Ruth is going to, Ruth is one of our newer members, uh, been here for a few months, and part of our gospel community, so very grateful that she's going to come and read this passage, Habakkuk chapter 2. Thank you. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. 
for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Thank you. Thank you for reading that long passage and for that uplifting, encouraging word. <laughs> so, again, uh, the second question Habakkuk asks is, God, how can you let somebody wicked prosper at the expense of someone who's more righteous. So to put this in modern terms, how can you let those cheaters, the Patriots, win all the Super Bowls? <laughs> or why do you allow uh, that, that crazy nut job of an actor, Tom Cruise, to make such good movies? How can you allow these things? But in all seriousness, I think we can relate to this question, to some extent anyway. Why did that person get the promotion instead of me? Why does she want to date him and not me? Why does that person, uh, that jerk, who never studies, they always get A's, and I study like crazy, and I always get B's and C's? How is that just? How can that be? We all grapple with those kinds of questions. But maybe we're not relating completely to this. Remember that Habakkuk begins his book by commenting on how sinful Judah is. And he wants God to show himself to be just by disciplining Judah, because they deserve judgment. And so God says he's going to do that by raising up wicked Babylon. So who is the righteous nation here? There isn't one. There's no righteous nation here. So can we really relate to this? Do we want to relate to this? When we aren't chosen for the, for the promotion, or when we don't get the girl, or when, we, when our academic or athletic achievements don't match somebody who has more natural talent or ability, what do we say? What do we think? We say, why, God? I'm better than this person. I'm more moral than this person. Why are you letting them have this and not me? We think that we deserve the good grades or the promotion because we're more moral, but we're not. Not really, are we? So what is scripture then? What does scripture say about our righteousness or our good deeds? Well, God's word says that our so-called, that's right, it says that our, our so-called good deeds are just filthy rags. One pastor put it this way. If our righteousness, in other words, the good things that we try to do in our own strength, if our righteousness requires the sacrifice of God's son, what will our sins require of us should we die in them? If our righteousness caused the perfect son of God such suffering, what kind of suffering will our sins bring us were we to be judged for them? The, the point here is that no one is truly righteous. No one is truly righteous on their own. We know this just simply from watching little kids. Uh, if we went over to the preschool building, we would see some adorable little kids, wouldn't we? But we'd also see some little sinners. <laughs> just like me and just like you. And no one has to teach those kids how to sin. They come by that naturally. It's in them. It just flows out of them. It flows out of me as well. The point is that no one is truly righteous. We're all sinners. In our, in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own nature, we are not righteous. We're not better. We're not better than that other person that God chooses to bless. 
we're not better than that other person that God uses to discipline us. Now, is that shocking to you? To hear that, to know that, to realize that? Perhaps that should be shocking because that is the very question that Habakkuk is struggling with in this as he hears God speaking to him. So let's look more closely at what God's response is and then what that means for us. So we've already seen that there are five woes in this passage that Ruth read. So is that like, whoa, hold up? Or is that like, woe is me, my life is so bad? What does woe mean? Well, actually, it doesn't mean either one of those. It, woe in this sense, in the Hebrew, it means it's a, it's a preparation for a declaration of judgment. Preparation for a declaration of judgment. So that's what's happening here. God is foretelling there is judgment coming. Now, he's already prophesied in chapter 1, as we've, we've seen, that in the future, he's going to raise up Babylon. And Babylon is going to um, uh, overrun Judah. Now he's saying that judgment is coming on wicked Babylon, that they won't get away with it for long, that they, there will be justice. There is going to be judgment against them. So before we get to the woes, look at verse 6 with me again. And here's, here's, I think, at least one point where you need to put your thinking cap on for just a minute. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So just, just as an aside, let me stop here and say that when, when we read our Bibles, we need to be active readers. We need to try to understand what is Scripture saying? What is it saying to us here? We need to ask some key, key questions and slow down. Or, because if we don't, this is really a confusing passage, or at least it was to me. If you don't slow down and understand it, you're going to miss the entire meaning. You're going to miss the point. So who's speaking here in verse 6? And who are all these? And who is him? What's being referred to here? Well, we, we know from the context, by looking back at verse 2, we know from the context that God is speaking here, the Lord is speaking here, when he says, and the Lord answered me. Further, we know all these, when it says all these in verse 6, we know that he's talking about the people of the nation of Judah who, are, who have been accosted, who have been plundered, who have been abused, uh, who have been used by the Babylonians. And finally, we know that the him is the nation of Babylon. And we know that by looking at verses 2 through 5. We can see, remember when Chuck was talking about the, the unrighteous or prideful? He's talking about he did this, he is this, he is that. So we know that him in this verse is talking about the Babylonians. So we can really read this. Another way to read this, this verse, verse 6, is to say, God says this about things that will happen. Shall not all the peoples of the nation of Judah, in other words, the righteous or the more righteous, shall not they take up their taunt against the unrighteous Babylonians with scoffing and riddles for the unrighteous Babylonians? So here we have the Lord answering Habakkuk's second complaint, second question, by prophesying what the nation of Judah will say to and about those plundering, conquering Babylonians. So the woes that are proclaimed in the following verses are, are really from the mouth of Judah, proclaimed against uh, the Babylonians. So are you with me? You got it? All right. So the message of all these woes is that the unrighteous will reap what they sow. What you won through sin, and now you celebrate, now you exalt in that sin, there will be justice, and you will get payback for this. 
So the subcontext or the underlying meaning of all this is that God is just, that we don't need to doubt whether God is just. And we need that reminder of God's justice in the world that we live in today, don't we? We can just look all around and we see all sorts of evil being done. And we wonder, is God just? We need this reminder of God's justice today. So as we explore these woes, as we talk about these woes, I want you to put yourself into the picture. Put yourself into the text. So remember that we are not righteous on our own. So how are you doing the very things that these woes of judgment are being proclaimed against? How are you sinful in the same ways? So we see the first woe, in, uh, starting in verse 6, and this is pronounced against those who steal or those who take what isn't their own. So reading verse 6 again, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So again, the, the oppressed, the abused person is saying in this verse, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this? How long are you going to wait to bring justice? But then we have this dramatic reversal in verse 7, where the, plunder, the plunderers become plundered. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, this, this really reminded me of the book of Esther. If you remember that, those that remember, there was the evil Haman who wanted to kill the, Mordecai, or Jew, the Jew Mordecai, and he had gallows built so that he could hang Mordecai on these gallows. And what happened? In the end, it was, it was the evil Haman who was hung on these gallows, right? So the message is that the evil you did the evil that you did will be used against you in the future. That there is justice and that you reap what you sow. So we see that on the cross as well, don't we? Satan opposed Jesus. He wanted to steal what belonged to Jesus. He tried to kill Jesus, wanted to kill, conspired to kill Jesus through Judas the traitor. He thought that the death of Jesus would end up in ultimate victory for him. But in this dramatic reversal, sin and death and Satan were destroyed on the cross as Jesus rose from the dead. So friends, I'm wondering how you take what isn't your own. Do you look for easy ways to get what you want, no matter the effects on other people? Are you always looking for the, the quick way without actually earning it or working hard? Now think not just in terms, my mind automatically goes to financial things or possession kinds of things when I think about taking what isn't your own. So don't just think about that. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of them is financial, but are you using somebody else's Netflix account? <laughs> I hear some college students. Do you take credit for the job that others do, either at work or at school? Do you stare at pictures of women that only their husband should see? The second woe in verses 9 through 11. 
And we see here that this woe is proclaimed against those who trust in things other than God. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So here we see that the sinful construct a house with evil gain that others have paid for. It looks safe and secure. Their trust is in their stronghold. They're proud and they're arrogant. But see then the irony that the unrighteous build to their glory, but in the end, their efforts ultimately end in destruction. It says, you have forfeited your life. So as, as we listen today, know that what you commit your life to, the message is that what you commit your life to, whether that's constructing some safe, secure financial life, or whether that's uh, making sure that your kids are always happy, or it's free time, or relationships, whatever you're committing your life to will ultimately let you down. It won't sustain us. Even the stones from the wall and the beams from the woodwork, those very things that we put our trust in, are going to cry out at our folly because we reap what we sow. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering in what ways you trust in things other than Christ. Is your identity wrapped up in how you look or how you act? Are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Are you crushed, parents, if somebody questions your parenting skill? Do you check your retirement portfolio or your Facebook account far more than you read your Bible? Are you trusting in something other than Christ? The third woe, verses 12 through 14, and this is seeking after your own fame. It says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here God's condemning the unrighteous who founded their cities on violence, on blood, death, and sin. So the focus here is on those who, who, would, who would try to achieve some sort of name for themselves. They're looking for some sort of security or some sort of status. So how do we know? How do I know that that's what the judgment here is against? How do I know that that's what he's talking about? Well, see the contrast in verses 12 and 13. The unrighteous build, but then remember that everything comes from God. God is the one who supplies everything. And then see, of course, the reminder of God's glory in verse 14. And this, this whole passage, this little section reminds me of, of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. They were building something to make a name for themselves, to get their own glory for themselves. The point is that the unrighteous think of themselves first, and maybe only. They forget God. They forget that God is the one that created everything, everything that they labor for. And what do they get? What does this, this passage say they get for their efforts? All that, all that uh, striving and toil and labor. And what do they get? Well, it says they get nothing. The prize that they had their eyes on ends up as, as just an illusion. Now, how different is that than what the world tells us? 
How different is that than what we hear from the world? The world claims that we can find meaning and purpose in career, in family, in relationships. The world says that we can find joy and contentment and happiness in those things, but the world lies. Because you reap what you sow. And the glorious truth is that the fame and the fortune that the unrighteous seek proves to be just a handful of dust. And in its place, we find the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, I, I'm not even sure I know what that means. Uh, that, that hardly makes any sense to me. As the water, think about it, as the waters cover the sea. That's a whole lot of glory, isn't it? The waters covering the sea. Whereas the towns and the cities that were listed won't last, God's glory is of infinite value and unmeasurable design. It lasts forever. So I would ask you, friends, how do you seek your own fame? How do you seek to make a name for yourself? Maybe you tell little white lies to cover up your flaws. Maybe at GCs, we just heard Pat talk about GCs. Maybe at your GCs, you only share praises and you don't share prayer requests. You don't share what's really going on, what you're really struggling with in your life. Maybe you think first and often to talk about yourself and you rarely talk or ask how the other person is doing. You're rarely focused on somebody other than you. So a fourth woe. Are you ready for this? Catch your breath with this. This is a lot of woes, a lot of judgment here. But the end, the end of this is worth it. So, so keep, keep with me on this. The fourth woe, and that is glorifying in sin. In verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So this, this fourth woe marks their unfaithfulness, their immorality. Verse 15 literally says that the unrighteous force others to follow their lead so that they participate in their drunken, their sinful ways. They encourage others to support and take part in their ungodly activity. But that's not enough just to encourage others to take part. Then they turn on those that they've drawn into sin and they mock them, they ridicule them, it says they gaze at their nakedness. This is the way of the unrighteous, to celebrate their sin, to encourage others to join in, and then to laugh at the folly that that sin creates in other people's lives. But in another irony, as with the third woe, they seek glory but they find shame instead God gives them over to their wickedness. When he says, drink yourself, he's giving them over to their wickedness. This points ahead to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, God gave them up, God gave the unrighteous up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. It's almost as though the same author of Romans wrote Habakkuk, isn't it? Saying the same thing, the same message. The point is that God gives us what we desire. He gives the unrighteous over to the desires of their heart. That's ungodliness and wickedness that leads to shame. 
But see this in verse 16. Verse 16 says, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And folks, that is not a good thing. We don't want that cup. That is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment upon the unrighteous. We read about that cup in several places in Scripture, but one of those places is in Psalm 75, verse 8. We read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So another irony, the wicked drink every last drop of their evil, every last drop of their wickedness. But they will also drain every last drop of God's justice. Because we reap what we sow. So I've done this. Perhaps you have as well. Uh, the thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about this myself is I, uh, some may not know this, but I, I've hurt other people by my juvenile joking, um, coarse talk, things that I should not be saying and doing. Uh, those are things that I've had to seek forgiveness for and repent of. Did that this morning, as a matter of fact. So what about you? How do you do this? How do you encourage people to sin, to glorify in sin? Do you celebrate sexual sin? For instance, do you like posts on Facebook that celebrate immoral behavior, immoral relationships? Do you encourage gossip amongst your friends? The fifth and final woe is found in verses 18 through 20. We read, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So in this final woe, we see this great contrast. It's really a summation of the first four, I think. So ultimately, what's the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous? Well, each is marked by what their heart is focused on, what captures their time, what they're looking at, what they're thinking about, what they're doing. So what are your idols? What do you seek to find happiness? Is it your time? Maybe you protect your schedule, your free time at all costs. Or maybe it's your, your possessions or your money. You hold those things very closely. You don't want to share what God has given you. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe your escape is exercise or crafts or video games. We expect our idols to do and give for us things that only God can do. But there's no profit in our idols. We're simply distrusting in our own selves, our own creation. We see that as here as the unrighteous commands his idol to awake and to arise. But our idols, do they have life in them? Can they wake up? Can they rise? But we have a living Savior. We have one who is alive and one who did rise. Do idols speak? 
No, idols don't speak, but God does. God speaks through his creation. He speaks to us through the very word that we're reading this morning, we're studying. He speaks through us ultimately through his son, Jesus, who came and lived a life like you and me, yet without sin. Note two here, it says that idols look pretty on the outside in verse 19. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Idols draw us in. And uh, just truth be told, as you've, I've heard an author say once, that if sin isn't fun, then you're not doing it right. And that refers to big bad sins, but it, it refers also to those that look good on the outside. Things like family or your career, hobbies when you're putting your, making that an idol. But in the final irony, idols overpromise and they underdeliver. So here's the contrast that we see. The unrighteous invest their lives in lifeless beliefs, in empty ways, yet God forever lives in his holy temple. All of creation is silenced at the will of the creator. And the righteous are given life by the one, the only one who is worthy of all praise. So all of this talk about righteousness and unrighteousness, woes, judgment, all this stuff. But remember what we started with. We're all unrighteous. So are these woes pronounced against us too? Is this, am I the target here? Well, here's the five woes again. First, taking what isn't your own. Second, entrusting yourself to financial security or to your own talents and abilities. Third, Trying to make a name for yourself, building yourself up in unhealthy ways, trying to achieve something in your own strength. Fourth, glorifying in unrighteous behavior or thoughts and encouraging others to take part in that as well. Fifth, making idols for ourselves, our time, hobbies, families, possessions. Folks, this is my life, unfortunately. I think this is all of us, isn't it? We're drawn to unrighteous living. We're all destined to experience these woes. But for Jesus. Of course, we don't like to acknowledge that our, or that our righteousness is dependent on something outside of ourselves. We make all kinds of excuses. We say things like, I just had a bad day. Or, I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't really tired. Or, they deserve that or I usually don't act that way, or I'm good in comparison to my neighbor, or I can't help it because of the way that I was born or the way that I was raised. But folks, your actions and your thoughts and your emotions aren't what determines whether you're righteous or unrighteous. Jesus is the dividing line between righteousness and unrighteousness. A faith and trust in Jesus divides the righteous from the unrighteous because the unrighteous will reap what they've sown. Those who reject God, those who are continually marked by the things that were mentioned as deserving of these woes of judgment, those who haven't entrusted themselves to Christ, then there will be justice. Think back to what we, we read earlier in verse 16, that the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. That is a stark reminder that there is a, a day of judgment that's coming, that King Jesus is coming back. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the king is coming again, and this time he's not coming gently. The first time he came to rescue sinners, but the second time he's not coming to rescue Second time, he's coming to bring justice. He's coming to bring judgment. Now that, that should strike fear into the hearts of the unrighteous. But that should bring some measure, some level of comfort to those that are believers in Christ. Many, many in this room have been taken advantage on, you've been trampled on, you've been abused, you've been hurt, you've been mistreated. And you may have cried out to God, just like Habakkuk did, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, before we're going to see justice? But we can trust and believe that there will be justice, that God is just. But for the believer in Christ, praise God that we don't reap what we sow. We've acted wickedly. We've, we've exemplified unrighteousness. Remember that we should receive judgment for these five woes. But in the greatest, the greatest of all ironies here, God, the only one who is not deserving of these woes of judgment, the only truly righteous one, stepped down from heaven and he became one of us. The righteous became unrighteousness. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5. We sung about that this morning. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5, remembering that we were, as a believer in Christ, you were unrighteous. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the unrighteousness, has passed away. Behold, the new, or the righteousness, has come. And then we read, for our sake he made, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin. God made the only righteous one to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus reaped what we sowed. He became sin, and all of our wickedness fell on him, and he was judged for it. The cup in the Lord's right hand came around to Jesus, and he drank every last drop of that cup. There is justice. He reaped what we sowed. So do you see that in this passage that we are Judah, but we are also Babylon? We deserve to drink that cup, but Jesus took it for us so that we could drink his cup of grace. And because of that, we're able to live for him. He took our wickedness. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us the ability to live for him as we make him the center of our lives, as we, as we seek to know him and spend time with him, as we seek to spend time with other believers. He's our righteousness, and he can keep us from falling into sinful patterns. Because of him, we don't have to take what isn't our own. Because of him, we can resist entrusting ourselves to things other than him. Because of him, we don't have to seek to make a name for ourselves. 
Because of him, we can resist exalting in sinful thoughts or actions. Because of him, we don't have to make idols. We can just truly worship him. Because Jesus is the dividing line between the righteous and the unrighteous. There is justice. The righteous get what they don't deserve. The righteous reap what Jesus sowed. But the unrighteous deserve God's justice. So if that's you, if you haven't confessed Jesus is your Lord, if he's not the ruler of your life, if you've not confessed that you're selfish and you're a sinner, if you haven't expressed a belief in God, you haven't given yourself over to him, then it's not too late because Jesus is the dividing line. This day can bring you righteousness because on that day, when Jesus comes again, it will be too late. So brother and sister, when we are the victim of injustice, when we cry out to God, when we say, how long, O Lord, when we don't see justice and we question whether God truly is just, we can trust that he is. He does see. History tells us that he did bring justice to Babylon. They did pay for what they had done. And we can trust that God will do the same for us as well. Even more, we have a savior who experienced injustice. A truly innocent man died. So the message is sowing and reaping. The righteous, because we're identified with Christ, we reap what Jesus has sown. But the unrighteous reap what they have sown to their, to their destruction. And that, that is a, a glorious and sobering truth. Praise be to God who has made a way for the unrighteous to become righteous through Jesus and who enables us to live for him and through him and in him. And praise be to God who is just. Let's pray. Father, we need to be aware of how completely inadequate, how woeful we are, how deserving of judgment we are, all on our own, in our own efforts, in our own strength. We need to be reminded that you have made a way for us through your son Jesus, that he took our unrighteousness, our wickedness, our sin, and that he gave us his righteousness so that we might live for him. God, help us to be reminded of that today. And for those in the room that, that don't know Jesus, I pray that they would see that truth and make that a reality in their lives today, that they would talk to someone around them. God, you are the only truly righteous one. and You are just. You do see what's going on in our lives. You do care for us. You are patient. You are loving. And you are just. We thank you for who you are. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.